think confidence is silent and insecurity is loud. That's right. Trump wants a military parade. So you're just going full dictator now. He could go see the tanks at a military base if he wanted to. And get Donald Trump a military uniform with epaulettes on the shoulders and give him some salad dressing to put on the left lapel and let him march around and, and pretend to be General Patton. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who wants tanks on Pennsylvania Avenue, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You see what he's doing, don't you? Calling for a huge military parade, like the one he saw in Paris on Bastille Day. It's not just an expression of my missiles bigger than yours competitiveness. It's a calculated political gambit, like his attacking NFL players for taking a knee during the national anthem, or calling Democrats treasonous for not standing and applauding for him during the State of the Union. Un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? Trump knows exactly how liberals are going to react to these outrages. They'll recoil in horror at his politicization of the military, his wrapping himself in the flag, and his disregard for free expression. And when Democrats react that way, the battle lines get drawn just where he wants them, with Trump on the side of patriotism, the flag, the military, and his opponents on the opposite side of those things for complicated reasons that his supporters don't want to understand. He's picking a fight he thinks he can't lose. So how do liberals avoid getting caught in the trap? How can they shun Trump's authoritarianism without getting framed as unpatriotic? Basically, I think there are two approaches. The first is to let patriots with impeccable credentials take the lead. So when the Navy SEAL who shot Osama bin Laden tweets that Trump's proposed parade is third world bullshit, well, it can't do any better than that. And the second is relentless mockery. Here's a sampling from the late night shows. Like, parades like this are often thrown in countries ruled by dictators, right? Now, look, I wouldn't say Trump is a dictator. I'd leave off the tater part. It's the first ever presidential Macy's Trumpsgiving Day military parade. Join us as the streets of Washington, D.C. are filled with a thrilling display of authoritarian power. So call him an ass, mock his ego, deride his intelligence. What liberals have to avoid in these concocted conflicts is sincerely objecting in a way that just plays into the trap that Trump is setting for them. Coming up on the show, the Steele dossier and the Nunes memo. One's for real, the other isn't. I'll be back to sort it out with former CIA officer John Seifer right after this message. I'm pleased to be joined in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio by John Seifer, He is a former member of the CIA's clandestine service, where he served for 28 years, including in Russia. Uh, And he's been the author of uh, several interesting pieces recently about Christopher Steele, including his most recent in Politico this week, The Smearing of Christopher Steele. John, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. So John Seifer, what a great name for a spy. Yeah, I know. I don't really like it that much, but people have said that. That would be too on the nose. Yeah. If, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, did you, you must have dealt with Christopher Steele. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you can say, but you you know this guy going back a ways? Yeah, so I know of Christopher Steele and I have friends who know Christopher Steele. So when I was in Moscow, it was about the same time he was in Moscow in the early to mid 90s. And then he ran their Russia program for SIS. That's the British Intelligence Service. Uh, in the early 2000s when I was on the American side doing the same thing. And so the British are probably our closest 
uh, partner in working you know, sensitive Russian cases. And so, uh, frankly, I never met, I never met him, but I but I'm, I know well of him, and he had a good reputation with us in CIA. You were sort of on parallel tracks in the same period in the nineties, yeah. trying to understand what was going on in Russia. Yeah, yeah. everybody's still trying to figure out what's going on in Russia. And he was well, Steele was in the MI MI six. Is that for people here who is that is that more like the CIA or more like FBI counterintelligence? So MI six, or we call it SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, is their overseas service, their sort of James Bond service, as opposed to the BSS, which is their internal FBI type of service. So you were uh, very critical this week of the Nunes memo, so called, on on a number of grounds. But basically, you defend the work that Christopher Steele did, first when he was hired by Fusion GPS, and then what he did in, in going to the FBI independently and presenting some of his findings. Well, yeah, the Nunes memo is, is, is frustrating on a number of levels. You know, it's obviously a sort of a polit- political hatchet job. But it sh- you know, you'd think from the head of the HIPSI of the House Intelligence Committee that Mr. Nunes would have done a better job of sort of finding out the facts and and, and putting them in perspective better. In terms of supporting Mr. Steele and, and the dossier, it, it's difficult to do because, you know, as, as much of the media has said, a lot of the specific allegations are unverified. But if they're unverified because they're, they're you know, Russian secret work, which, which is going to be very hard to uncover without the tools and, and that an FBI and professional investigators would have to look at phone records and travel records and work with foreign police and intelligence partners to, to put together pieces on that. So, you know, I find that the that the dossier allegations, which were which were written in a series of sort of contemporaneous intelligence reports, if you were over time, many of the things in there uh, sort of ring true to those of us who've worked in Moscow and worked against the Russians, and then subsequently, a decent amount of that information, which which the Trump campaign and others denied, has proven to either be true or at least you know, worthy of serious investigation so that when people like Nunez and others try to write it off as completely as garbage or to deny uh, that Mr. Steele was a serious person based on who might have been paying the the contractor for that work, you know, I, I find that frustrating as a former intelligence officer. You also point out that there are things that might not be specific verifica- verification, but tend to confirm aspects of the dossier, including the Stormy Daniels case, <laughs> which I was up to in my neck in a couple of weeks ago, because what it shows apparently is Donald Trump through his lawyer, Michael Cohn, play, paying something akin to blackmail, or I should say, allegedly paying something akin to blackmail. Yeah, it was interesting when that when that came out, because the sort of salacious details of, of the memo that a lot of people have sort of steered away from, you know, sort of fit that same pattern that we've seen with the Stormy Daniels material. So Mr. Steele, long before anybody knew that Mr. Trump would win and long before any of this information on the Trump relationship with Russia and things came out, reported that, you know, Mr. Trump's behavior with women in Moscow, you know, he was filmed, you know, with prostitutes and, and involved in, in various sexual things that the, that the FSB, the Internal Russian Service, were looking at and and filming and and could potentially use his blackmail, and then also as part of the reporting from Mr. Steele at that time, again long before any of this came out, he reported that Mr. Cohen was was essentially uh, Mr. Trump's fixer, who who was involved in traveling to Europe and paying off hackers and others that were collecting information on Mrs. Clinton and, and information to help the Trump campaign. So, you know, it doesn't fit exactly, but it it is, you know, that kind of blackmail material that and and using a fixer in the case of Stormy Daniels Mr. Cohen or excuse me yeah Mr. Cohen who um looks like or at least allegedly paid Mrs. Uh, 
Daniels, if yeah. you will, <laughs> whatever. Miss Daniels, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Miss Daniels. Yeah. Mr. Cohen, um, Mr. Yeah. Daniels, know, yeah. Paid her hush money uh, and also used sort of a false company and, and false names to do that. So it, it does fit sort of with what Mr. Steele had reported earlier. Now, the Nunez memo is very tendentious politically, obviously. But beyond that, you point out that it seemed to misunderstand some basic things about intelligence work in the FBI, which is not what you would expect from any chair of the House Intelligence <laughs> Committee. And for example, you focus on this point that it calls Steele a source of the FBI. And he wasn't the source, was he? No. It can be a difficult thing because obviously the word, he's a source in the basic English definition of the word is he was the person who provided information to the FBI. However, that word has a real specific meaning in the intelligence community. The, the director of national intelligence actually has you know, a series of guidelines about what is a source in the intelligence community. And a, a source to us and to the FBI, who is a part of the intelligence community, is that it needs to be a, a clandestinely run person who is under some level of control by the, uh, by the FBI in this case. Um, and who often they'd be paying. And often they would be paying. Uh, or, or using in, in some way something to help that that person out to make them, you know, report. And there's a process by which you take sources through to, to see if they're genuine and true. And if they're not, you, you you don't meet with them anymore. And I think what Mr. Nunez did, either because he doesn't understand, is confused, or was manipulating the use of the word source, is to suggest that because Mr. Steele was talking to reporters and because Mr. Steele was not only – sharing this information with the FBI, he was breaking some sort of unwritten source rule that, or maybe even doing something illegal with the FBI. And there, there are no such rules in the intelligence community around sources. If, if we in the CIA could blame all of our sources for our problems, we could say, oh, the, the weapons of mass destruction problem in Iraq, that, that's not our problem. That was a bad source. And so it's just not, not the way that, that it works. And so that issue of whether he's a source or not, is troubling. And it's troubling on another facet because if Mr. Nunez actually believes he was an official source of the FBI, which if he had asked the FBI, they probably would have said no, then to smear his name in public is... is, is You're very, disclosing a source. Which is very damaging. Why would any person overseas or any service that works with us be willing to share information if we, the head of the House Intelligence Committee is willing to publicly out a, a source and put that person in a potentially dangerous situation. I mean, there's a specific law against that. That's what that whole Valerie Plame case was about, right? <laughs> that's was, a good point. Well, that was outing a confidential agent. of uh, That was uh, uh, outing an undercover CIA agent. That's right. But outing a source is is bad in a parallel way. Oh, absolutely. It goes against sort of everything that supports our business. Again, you know, you, it's difficult to recruit people to to spy and help the United States regularly. But if those people don't have any faith or trust in our system that we protect our secrets and we protect our sources, probably similar to what is in the media, you're not going to get very many sources. So he wasn't a source, uh, but Christopher still did approach the FBI. What was he? What would they have, how would they have classified him in their probably, relationship with Probably him? as a, a former trusted partner who'd worked with them before on the FIFA soccer case and, and probably worked with them as well as well as working with the CIA while he was a professional officer with the British service. So he was taken seriously as a former partner who, who, who shared information that he thought was important. So in some ways, you know, he was he did probably the right thing, which nobody in the Trump campaign ever did. Mr. Papadopoulos and, and Donald Trump Jr., when they were given information stolen from an American citizen by a hostile power, Russia, 
they never shared that information with security lawyers or the FBI like they should have, whereas both the Australians, in the case of Mr. Papadopoulos, and then Mr. Steele, the British, realized the, you know, how important and how potentially dangerous this was and shared it with the FBI, which is a right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, the Republican position seems to be that if they can discredit Christopher Steele and then discredit the FBI for for relying on Christopher Steele's information, they never have to deal with what's in the dossier. <laughs> yeah, there's a number of things that I find sort of troubling with that. You know, first of all, as, as professional intelligence officers, it is your job when given, uh, you know, potentially serious information is, is to run it to the ground to see if it's true or not. You absolutely need to know and look at the source of that material. But look at it in the sense of, say, it's a terrorist information. If, if somebody came to the FBI or someone said, I have information of a terrorist attack about to take place, you wouldn't stop and wait and, and talk about, well, where's the payment They're for this? pro-Trump well, or anti-Trump <laughs> or pro-Clinton. No, you right. need to look at those things. And so what's interesting to me, as far as this goes, is given the information that was in the dossier, that's incredibly damning information. It's potential espionage. It's a, you know potential money laundering, a number of other things. They quickly and professionally have an obligation to look at that material and see if any of it's true. If it's not, they wouldn't waste their time. They would, you know, they would say thank you. They'd look at it quickly and, and move it on. So it's really interesting that they're trying to attack Mr. Steele and attack the dossier, and then obviously Mr. Trump calling it garbage and trash. If it's trash, they've got nothing to worry about because the FBI is a, they're busy people. They're, they have a lot of work to do. They're not about to try to make information where it doesn't exist. So if none of that information checks out, they would just they would they would easily push it aside and move on. They can't make up information that's not there. So it's surprising to me that the drama and the anger around something that they claim is just garbage anyway. So they they clearly did find Steele very credible and his information very credible. Um, but then right before the election, there's this weird development where the FBI is quoted anonymously, FBI agents quoted anonymously in the New York Times dismissing the Russian investi investigation into Trump right after James Comey has announced that they're reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton. So somehow the FBI manages to communicate what's pretty much the opposite of the truth, which is they give people to understand that there's nothing there with the Trump story when it turns out that they, by their own analysis, there was something there. And thinking likewise, or, or conversely, that there was something to the Hillary Clinton allegation, which they dropped again shortly thereafter for lack of any meaningful evidence. It's interesting. I don't understand you know, how, how the Republicans and others or people are looking at this. I think there's an assumption somehow that the FBI would be – would be because Mr. Steele provided information, the FBI would be providing information back to him on what checked out and what didn't. And so it sounds like, if I understand – at that time period, Mr. Steele was providing information to the FBI, and when he saw the Hillary Clinton thing open up again, he assumed that they weren't taking his information seriously and therefore was frustrated by that. But of course, I mean, the way the FBI and the CIA and other places work is you know, we gladly accept information, but we don't have an obligation to, to share that back with the source so that they understand. And I think in this case, it, it, it discombobulated Mr. Steele. Does it matter if Christopher Steele preferred that Hillary Clinton be elected to Donald Trump being elected. It's still not completely clear to me if he knew where the funding from G Fusion GPS was coming from. I'm not sure. I think in Glenn Simpson's testimony, he said that he didn't tell Christopher Steele who was paying. Yeah, I didn't read the whole testimony, but I, but Mr. Simpson's uh, op-ed in the New York Times said he specifically did not tell Mr. Steele where the funding was. They just told them that they wanted to look into 
Mr. Trump's business dealings with Russians and other things. So, you know, I don't know whether whether that part is true. You know, Mr. Steele is a British citizen, so he's not as animated and c- connected to our politics as we all are. In term, he's not a Republican or a Democrat. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. And uh, the Nunez memo made much about the fact that that in I believe the fall of 2016, uh, Mr. Steele said something about you know wanting to get this information because it was important that Mr. Trump not get elected, and looking at that as bias and looking at it through a p- political filter. Um, to me, uh, you know, that could also that could also support the non-Nunez side of things. If Mr. Steele, as a professional intelligence officer, was so confident in his sources that those same sources had helped him on the FIFA investigation and that he believed what he was being told, then it's natural that he would not want Mr. Trump to be elected. You know, he was he was getting information that suggested a conspiracy with the Russians, possible espionage, and these other things. And so, I don't think it was a, you know. He had had a long-serving dislike of Mr. Trump as a political candidate. It wasn't ideological. It was. I mean, you you have. A, there's a great quote in your uh, political uh, political piece this week. You said, "If I collected information from trusted and knowledge, knowledgeable sources that Trump was engaged in a criminal conspiracy with Vladimir Putin, I'd be biased too." <laughs> yeah. So I'm surprised that they use that as a as something. And, and, and at the end of the day, if someone is a source like Mr. Nunez claims for for the FBI, whether they're you know, their political views are only interested in as we put together what makes that that source tick, what are his motivations, what are his connections. But if that person is providing information that we're able to verify, check, trust moving forward, then whether that person is a Republican or a Democrat doesn't much matter. There are a few other charges against Steele, and they're, they sort of become uh, decreasingly persuasive. But what about this complaint that Steele went to the press? That seems to be one of the Republican arguments for discrediting or dismissing him. Was he violating some rule when he was talking to the FBI and also having background conversations at the Washington Post and elsewhere? I think this goes to the either Mr. Nunez's misunderstanding or his effort to try to suggest in his memo that because Mr. Steele was a source of the FBI, then he was obligated to act in a certain way. Or that, like we've seen since, you know, with Mr. Flynn and others, if you lie to the FBI, that's a, a crime for a U.S. citizen to, to lie to the FBI. However, as a, as a source, as a foreign person who's passing information voluntarily, there's no rules around this. He wasn't an employee of the FBI and he wasn't bound by the rules that would govern an FBI no, employee. He's a, he's a British citizen and if he, and he you know, he collected information for his company, if he chooses to talk to, to journalists and others, that's completely his prerogative. Now, at the same time, it's the prerogative of the FBI if they think that that's becoming too open and out there that they can certainly sever that relationship. But it's not a it's not a legal issue, which I think the memo is trying to apply. I mean, the the, the evidence here is sort of preposterous, but also the the <clears throat> argument is on its face pretty implausible that the FBI was making a, a surreptitious and devious effort to elect a Democrat as president. I mean, the FBI is a pretty Republican <laughs> place, and the FCIA is too, just in terms of if you actually asked the, what, what, how do the people who work there vote, they're professionals, but aren't both the CIA and the FBI pretty Republican? That would be my guess, but it's, it's funny. I was just talking with a, a friend who's retiring from CIA yesterday. A lot of people will come to talk, you know, what's it like outside, you know, looking for jobs, that kind of thing. And we were talking about this very thing. And I said, listen, I've been working with you for 20 years, all these overseas places. I have no idea what your politics are. I think at least in the, in the CIA, the, the culture of 
nonpartisan work was was very, very strong. So among many of my friends, I had no idea what their politics were till I retired and saw them on Facebook or whatever and noticed, you know, what, what they were saying. So we take great pride in the fact that, you know, it's nonpartisan. I've never been in a meeting in the CIA where we talked about supporting one candidate or one party ever in any case. And perhaps the director of the organization is a political appointee, whereas everyone up else all the way up through the deputy director are professionals that that are fo- focused on on mission and, and i you know you hear these things now saying oh the fbi those are all obama holdovers well i was a reagan holdover and then i was a bush holdover and then i was a clinton holdover like we work for the united states not for a, in the in, in support of the constitution not for a specific party now the fbi yeah my my guess and most of the people i know i at least i suspect that they're they're more conservative than they are liberal but they also have that same thing. They're working because they support the United States and they support the Constitution, not you know this partisanship. That's what's very frustrating about this administration because they are giving the impression to the American people that these institutions are partisan, that they're hacks, that they they work for one president and then you know and leave. And, and listen, we can't swap out you know the thirty thousand people of the FBI every time there's a new pre- new president to sort of support those policies and things. So that. That's very frustrating to many of us in, in in the profession. Do you think there's any precedent for what's going on now in terms of the attempt to politically discredit intelligence work? I mean, there certainly have been past attempts, if you go back to Watergate, to use the intelligence agencies for political purpose. But have you ever seen anything like this in, in terms of political figures trying to discredit basic the basic function of intelligence? Not, I, no, I haven't. Not the basic function. Now, you know, the intelligence agencies and the CIA and others have been under political fire for, you know, mistakes and problems. And, you know, in the 1970s, the FBI, you know, the, both the FBI and CIA have had a history of, you know, of things that have, that have been rightly criticized over time and sometimes wrongly criticized. But, but having the president of the United States undermining the very notion of, you know, of, of a nonpartisan professional law enforcement and intelligence agencies is something we haven't seen. And to see the reaction of a lot of, you know, retired people, you see Mr. Clapper and Mr. Brennan and and, and Mr. Comey and all these other people sort of out talking about these issues. Now, they probably in the past wouldn't have done that because I think they're they're shocked by what they're seeing. You must have a lot of friends who are still there. What's morale like at the agency? Well, it's funny because, because I talk a little bit to the media and I write now, I'm very careful. Again, there's a very strong culture about mission-focused, nonpartisan. So, I'm very careful about not sort of eliciting when I talk to my friends. You know, I'll talk to them about they're not personal. Source. They're things. not sources <laughs> for you. No, no. Um, but it's got to be a very difficult time. I think the agency, in some ways, is probably better off. I'm just as me guessing than perhaps the FBI in this case, because in the CIA, again, like I said, I worked for a number of presidents, and the, the work almost never changed. There was always an interest in important and good intelligence. Many of our people are overseas focused on mission things that, that are critical for the government and they're not going to change depending on political party. So it's a little bit easier to put your head down and not pay attention to the, the, the churn in Washington. Whereas the FBI is a domestic organization and probably faces it more directly than in the CIA. Like if I was, if I was in the CIA now and I wasn't prepared to retire, I would try to get myself a job somewhere long, far away in India or something focused on, on doing the work and, and, being away from sort of the, the people at the FBI are just more vulnerable than people at the CIA. I, I see it that way. Yeah. 
So, John, as you say, the Republicans want to do anything but look at what's in this dossier. But when you read it as someone who is an intelligence professional, you know, as you say, nothing in it's been disproven, but very little in it has been definitively proven, if anything. How much do you think, how much would you guess, ultimately, will we find out this group? <laughs> well, that's one thing is the the attacks against the dossier and the author of the dossier are so powerful, but I've seen very little dealing with with the content of the dossier. And professional investigators at the FBI, they need to look at that and see whether it makes sense. Like I told you, in the, or I mentioned earlier, you know, if it's a, if it's a terrorist threat, they got to see whether it makes sense. And so if they look at that material and it makes sense, they're obligated to sort of push forward. So clearly, we're unable to verify a lot of around the dossier, but it does provide a sort of a narrative of collusion. We, you know, there's the Russian services are the best in the world at blackmail and these kind of covert operational games that they played. Mr. Trump is probably, you know, of candidates, the, the most unique and vulnerable to blackmail and extortion. We've then seen activity that the, that the, um, the dossier talks about of people associated with Trump dealing with Russians. Some of them have even been arrested for that. There's a number of meetings that, that sort of fit with what's in the dossier. And then subsequent to that, when they originally, the Trump campaign people said they had nothing to do with Russia. And then as these things have dribbled out over time, they've, they've lied about it and covered up and then attacked any institution that could hold them responsible. So that's a clear sort of narrative that comes from the dossier of of collusion, but what I haven't seen, and I'm surprised by, any effort by people who want to support Mr. Trump to refute the specific allegations or to provide a, a corresponding narrative of innocence. Like it, to me, I don't understand why any campaign, anybody running for president, needs to be talking to Russians. If you're trying to win votes in New Hampshire and Iowa, why do you need to be speaking? to Russians. And if you're speaking to Russians for some reason, are you speaking to Chinese and Germans and others? So I've never seen anybody, Mr. Trump, or other than attacking these institutions to say, oh, listen, we were talking to these Russians for this reason, that reason, you know, maybe it was a mistake, but they haven't done that. Instead, all they've been on, they've done is attack everyone who's brought up legitimate issues. Yeah, their their narrative innocence is they had a lot of freelancers who were off doing things without their authorization. And secondly, although they were willing to hear these ideas about cooperating, colluding with them, they didn't pull the trigger. Well, then they, they should own up to that and explain it. You know, essentially, the only thing I've ever heard is when push comes to shove, they say, oh, it's all legal. Well, it's legal, but it doesn't make sense. If I'm sitting in front of you now and I smash my hand with a hammer, that's legal. But you're going to want to know why the heck I <laughs> smash my hand with a hammer. And if I just say, well, it's legal, you're going to walk away quite confused. And so I think that's where we are. Like, Why you know, were they up to their necks with Russia and not particularly with any other country in the world? Right. Yeah. I've been speaking to John Seifer. He's a former official in the CIA's clandestine service. His piece in Politico this week is The Smearing of Christopher Steele. John, thanks for coming in. Thank you. My pleasure. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And hey, have you given us a rating and review? You can definitely do it on Apple Podcasts. Maybe you can do it on some of the other players you use, like Overcast, Stitcher. Can you give ratings and reviews there? If you can, please do. And if you can't, please do one on Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.